is 1.37 p.m. Stories of hustle and grind from the intersection of culture, style, music, and sports. Hey, what's going on? It's Corbin Goebel from 137pm.com. This is the 137pm podcast. I'm joined here today by Doug Bobst. Uh, Doug, how are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Corbin. Um, and Doug is a fitness trainer who's going to tell us kind of his backstory about being, um, and you know, he was in jail. He was a you know a felon, and he turned his life around in his uh, experience in prison. And he's written a book about it. He's writing a new book called um, "It Is the Titans of Recovery," which I think is a really interesting project, and I want to hear a little bit more about that. But uh, yeah, I guess uh, so. Just sort of tell me why you're in New York and what's going on and what you what you've been up to. You just had a Today Show featurette that was really cool. I mean, the the feature on the Today Show was really nice. It came out quite well, and it kind of really highlighted my story, which was which I was really happy the way. Because sometimes you never know how things are going to yeah, come out. Yeah, totally. So yeah, give give us the logline on the story, sort of, uh, you know, and and how you sort of got to be right here today. Yeah. So you know. Growing up, I was the total opposite of what I am now. I mean, now I'm a personal trainer. You know, I love motivating people and helping them, you know, improve their lives. But back in the day, I was just in a really, really rough spot. And my parents got divorced when I was five. And that kind of, for me, I took it pretty bad. Right. And, and where were you guys living in the country? So we were in, so we're in Baltimore, Maryland. Gotcha. The suburbs of Baltimore, Maryland. And they got divorced when I was five. And obviously, when your parents get divorced, they split. And so we're bouncing around from house to house. And through that, um, I just didn't have the best eating habits. So like most nights out of the week, I would eat something like pasta or pizza or whatever, because I really had no idea, you know, as a kid, you're really not thinking about what you're putting in your body. And then on top of that, I just wasn't the most gifted athletically. So I was playing sports with all my friends, but I was always like one of the last ones picked. Couldn't jump, couldn't run. And, you know, I started to get depressed. And I was like, why are my parents divorced and a lot of other kids aren't? Because most of the kids I hung out with, their parents weren't divorced. And then I, I started gaining weight at like a young age and I became depressed because I was getting picked on. I was, you know, fatter than a lot of kids. And I just was going down a path mentally that I didn't know where it was going to lead. And so fast forward a few years, um, I was 14 years old and I got offered a hit off a marijuana pipe. And for me, you know, I could smoke pot and then have that monkey come off my back to be comfortable in my own skin, which for me just wasn't a good thing because I hadn't felt good about myself until I started smoking pot. And one thing led to the next, and I ended up, you know, selling enough to support my own habit. You know, as things went on, I ended up selling more pot to the point where I was selling you know, two, three pounds a week, which is like 10 grand a pot, you know, at right. the end of the day when you're selling it and barely got through high school because here I was, I was selling drugs. I was skipping class to go get high. Like I had, I, I had no idea what I was going to do when I was growing up. I just knew that I'm going to party. I'm going to smoke weed. And that was it. And then I graduated high school and, and got involved with cocaine and growing up, like I said, I was depressed. I struggled with anxiety and cocaine and anxiety just don't mix at all. Right. It's like, just not what you want to be doing. And it's like, if you're trying to lose weight, eating Big Macs, it's just not going to work. Right. Yeah, right. And, and so I ended up getting really, really bad anxiety because I was, you know, I was an entrepreneur, right. I was selling pot. Right. Yeah. Right. right. And I was hustling. Yeah. And, but it was hustling the wrong way. Right. 
and I was doing stuff I knew I shouldn't be doing. Well, you were also, it was like you were using it to self-medicate also that, you know, you were selling it, but also using it to, you know, right? Yeah. 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 And then I got to a point where I'd smoked myself so stupid. Like I couldn't smoke, I, I couldn't, I couldn't get high anymore. Like when I would smoke, I would get super paranoid. I would have crazy anxiety and nobody really knew. Cause I mean, but like a lot of people don't understand that pot can make like a small percentage of the population pretty paranoid based on maybe your genetics or what you got going right, on in your right. brain. And that ended up being me over time. Yeah. And so I, I was offered a five milligram Percocet one day, just randomly. I took it. I felt this, the same monkey come off my back when I started smoking pot. So for me, like pot was the gateway drug. I mean, there's a lot of, obviously there's a lot of conflict and disagreements about whether it is, whether it isn't. Right. I always say, you know, just look at, I mean, for me, it was like, if I wouldn't start, hadn't started smoking pot, I wouldn't have needed that next thing to help me feel better. And the five milligram Percocet, led to me putting two, 300 uh, milligrams of Oxycontin up my nose every single day to the point where like my left nose, part of my left nostril was like missing from it just being so corroded. And I just was in a really dark place. I didn't want to live. I was hoping one day I'd snort something and just never wake up again. And, you know, I, I had no idea where I was headed. I just knew I was in the depths of despair and just like gripping for dear life. And Cinco de Mayo 2008, a lot of my bad decisions came to a head. I was riding around with a few of my friends to go pick up some Oxycontin. I had a headlight that was um, out and a cop was running radar. Cinco de Mayo, I mean, like an idiot. I forgot that Cinco de Mayo was like one of the biggest drinking nights of the year. Running radar, I flashed my high beams at him thinking he wouldn't see the headlight busted. And I got pulled over, you know, yanked out of the car because, you know, I just obviously he knew something sketchy was going on. He found a half pound of pot in my car, $2,000 in cash, and arrested me on felony drug charges, took me to jail. And I went to court a few months later and the judge sentenced me uh, to five years, but he suspended everything but 90 days. And he gave me five years probation, 200 hours community service, all kinds of drug classes and fines. But he's like, Doug, if you complete everything without messing up, I'll take the felony off your record. Which to me, I was 20 years old and I got to tell you, Corbin, like I didn't think I was going to live to see my 25th birthday. It was, right. I was like terrible, terrible shape. My like mental psyche was like, I had nothing. I had nothing left in me because everything that like, I was almost like fulfilling like this self-esteem I didn't have was selling drugs. It was like my phone was ringing all the time. I felt wanted. I felt right. needed. People giving you money. <laughs> yeah, they were giving me money. It felt great, right? Yeah. And I reported to jail about a week after my 21st birthday. It was about uh, two, three weeks after I went to court. I was crying, I was really contemplating like my life. And I was like, well, all right, I'm gonna be really smart. I'm gonna snort as much oxy as I can before going into jail because this is it, right? And little did I know how bad the withdrawal would be. So I get in there and I'm like, you know, obviously crying and, and just like- And where, yeah, where was the facility? So, like I was in in Harford, you? so I was in Hartford County, Hartford County Detention Center. Gotcha. Which people joked around, it was called like the Hartford Hilton because it wasn't like state prison. Yeah, but it gotcha. was like you know county jail, and my my soon to be cellmate was sitting at the Scrabble table, and he is like he like looks at me when I walk into the common area. He's like, "What the hell are you doing here?" Because I just didn't look like I mean I didn't look like the person who was cut out to survive jail. Yeah, and I just said, "Hey man, like I got busted selling drugs," he's like, you know. And then he got more into my story, and he was like, "You know, why don't you sit down here and play Scrabble, and then you know we can go from here." And we just Ended up like kind of hitting it off. And then later that night I saw him working out and he was like Rocky exercise. Like I've been, a, I've been in the <laughs> yeah. fitness business now for yeah. like for eight years. 
And he was the he's still the fittest guy to this day I've ever seen. Just thousands of push-ups, cranking out pull-ups, running. Like I was like, holy shit. He's like, what's this guy doing, right? And I remember just him saying to me, you're going to work out with me, Holmes. And I was like, what? I was like, no way, man. I was like, have you seen, like, I could have been a model for Pillsbury at the time. Like, I was like, and, you know, after a few weeks of me detoxing, which, you know, detoxing of opiates, felt like I wanted to crawl out of my own skin. I Anxiety was way up, all kinds of aches and pains, you know, throwing up and going to the bathroom uncontrollably, all that stuff. It's real. It's true. And I remember one night just being like, hey, man, like, let's do this exercise thing. He's like, you sure? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, I, like, I need you to be committed. He's like, no bullshit, like. I need you to be committed. And I said, all right, man. So I remember getting down to do a push-up, couldn't do a push-up, could barely do one for my knees, could really hardly walk. And I just remember looking at him like, his name was Eric. I was like, Eric, like, what the heck, man? He's like, dude, you're fat. I was like, I mean, I know, but he's like, you're fat. He's like, you have no strength in your core. He's like, you can't even hold yourself up. He's like, this is pathetic. It might not resonate with like everybody. Like not everybody obviously likes being called fat, right? Yeah, yeah. For me, just it's, in that setting, especially, it, it, or, and yeah. it lit a fire in me. Yeah, yeah. Like I had never, I had never been so motivated in my life. It just lit this fire in me, and he trained me in, in there every day, and I ended up being able to do ten push-ups and run a mile when I left, which seems minuscule, but like that was like it kickstarted um, my purpose in life. Yeah, yeah. because you, you were there ninety day, how, how long? Ninety gotcha. days. So, so like, what did you? I'm just kind of like the day to day with Eric, your cellmate, right? It was that was his name. I mean, yeah, I can get into some stories. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to, I would love to hear just sort of like, yeah, what it was like. What did you, you know, well, you're in the cell. Like, describe that scene to me. I think it's really interesting. And you're saying you hadn't really exercised, you hadn't really like didn't have any muscle. To, you know, like what well, was? Yeah, I mean, to tell you to tell you the truth, Eric wasn't my first cellmate. He was my third cellmate because like, I got kicked out of two cells because I didn't read the idiot's guide on how to survive jail one on one. And my first, my what'd fir you do? So my <laughs> first, my first cellmate, like I said, the first few weeks I was in there, I was detoxing off oxycotton. Right. And I ended up like the like one of the rules. Like there's obviously there's like no things you don't do in jail, and the one is you don't climb in somebody else's bunk, right? So somebody, if if you get in there, it's based on like tenure. If you've been in there like a long time, you get the bottom bunk, and the per the newbie gets the top bunk. Well, I didn't follow the protocol, I, nor, nor did I really know. And my cellmate was out. My first mate was uh, cellmate was out like playing something out in the common area, and I was so like tired, like weak. I just wanted to lay down, so I crawled in his bottom bunk, took a nap. He walks in, he's like, "You know what the hell are you doing, man?" I was like, and "Out I went." Luckily, I didn't get my ass beat, but um, and then my second cellmate, you know, I just ended up, God, I remember just doing something crazy where I like washed, like a washcloth, like a dirty washcloth in the sink over his food, and he was this old man who looked like you know Splinter. Again, I was like so like out of it. Like I was like a zombie walking around. I, my, my, my head was so foggy. I mean, I couldn't even, it was hard for me to put words together at dur during this time. So as I look back, it's, you know, you, you kind of think like, man, I can't believe you did that. But I mean, like in that state of mind I was in, it was just, it was just a really, really dark place for me. Right. I mean, so many cogwebs. And, and so Trent, when I got to move in with Eric, he was like, Pretty much, he said to me, he's like, if you eat, if you cheat on your meal, like he gave me a meal plan. Like in jail, like when you're in, in jail, the food's not the best, right? Um, it's not like Vayner Media food, I'm sure, right? <laughs> but, you know, but so you get like, we had meals like diced mice and rice. Yeah. And we had um, meals that we would get like these hockey pucks for breakfast that was like fake sausage and mystery meat for lunch, which was like this nasty looking bologna, Right. But so he had to make me a plan of like cutting out the bread, not eating the potatoes, no like ordering like, you know, ramen noodles off commissary. 
And he's like, if you don't stick to this, I'm gonna punch you in the stomach. And I, I like, I seriously was so, like I was, you know, fat, you know, and had like no muscle that if he punched me in the stomach, I probably would have had internal bleeding. And so <laughs> I was scared to cheat. I really was. And he was like, you know, every Sunday night we'll make this thing called a hookup, which a hookup is we would save all our meat from the week. We would order noodles off commissary. We get cheesy rice and um, these little dude, like little sausages. And we'd put it in a plastic bag with boiling water and you let it sit for like 30, 40 minutes. And you'd have like Thanksgiving in the joint. Like it was pretty cool. You know what I mean? Like to, but that was like my cheat meal. And so in the mornings we would work out. So we would do like, I mean, at the beginning it was like him literally helping to pull me up while I did push-ups. It was him literally help, like helping to pull me up while I did sit-ups. And we would do like three, four sets of that. And then we would do like jumping jacks and we would do things like dips off of a bench. Um, and then at night was the time to run. And so we had this common area where people were playing cards, people were uh, you know, playing games, they were watching TV. And there was like a little circle you could run around. It would be like a lap. And I'd use a deck of cards to count how many laps I ran. So I'd be able to tell like how, how, how much I was improving, how far I was going, which really helped me. But it also like, everybody started kind of pulling for me when I was in there because they saw the consistency of how I wasn't, like I never, I never missed a workout in there. And then when I started to see results, like that light bulb changed and I was like, you know, I can change. Like I'm going to beat this addiction. Yeah. How long do you think it took before you like really started to see results and, and feel like you were getting stronger or feeling better? I mean, I'd say after the first week I felt better. Yeah. You know, I felt like I was doing something. That sense of accomplishment. I felt like I was nourishing my body finally for the first time. And I just had goals. Like that goal of being able to do 10 push-ups was like, it was gold. To me. Like that was gold. Like being able to do that. Right. I mean, and then I always tell people it wasn't the push-ups and the sit-ups. It was how they made me feel doing those things to the point where, um, you know, each day I started improving and people just started seeing a change to like where everybody else was holding me accountable. Right. Because they were like, I better not see you eating. I remember one night I ate like a, a thing. Of, I hid like in my cell and ate like a thing of noodles. And they told my cellmate, he's like, all right, Doug, you know, the, you can either run three or four miles. I'm punching you in the stomach. I was like, yeah, uh, so. <laughs> I think I'm going to run. <laughs> and so, but you know, we, we would do some crazy stuff too. We would fill up like trash bags with water and do like bicep curls and do some like boxing drills where we'd hold up the, the bag and, and do some shadow boxing and stuff. But, you know, really you're limited because there was no gym in there, just your body weight and your mind. And that was it. Like you had to really continue to tell you, like I was playing like music in my head, like, you know, you start doing crazy stuff when you're in jail. That was one of the, like, you know, talking to yourself because you're like, you have no, you got to push yourself when you're in there. And I knew it was like do or die for me. I was either going to go to the left and end up back in jail, dead or combination of both, or I was going to go this other way. And if I somehow by some miracle believed in myself enough to keep it going, I'd make it. And I knew I had no shot going to the left. So I just decided to go to the right. And it, to the point where I cried the day I left jail. Like that 90th day or I think actually with good behavior. So good behavior, you get five days off a month, which I didn't, I behaved myself. And then I got a job like midway in there, like wiping, wiping down tables. So you get another five days off. So I ended up serving like 72 days. And the day I left, I cried because I just didn't want to leave. It was so weird. Like if, if you had asked me a few years before, like, hey, Doug, you're going to go to jail in two years and you're going to cry when you leave because you don't want to leave or when you leave. And I'm like, ah, uh, it's never going to happen. Right. My cellmate changed my life so much by the things he would tell me. And he was like, quit being a bitch, you know, suck it. Like that. And that stuff, like I said, might not resonate with everyone, but like where I'm from, you don't want to be called a bitch. And that like just didn't, it didn't 
sit well with me to be called that. And, you know, he was just very, very hard on me, which I, I needed that tough love at the time. I needed that person to sit there and just beat me up like, you know what I mean? Yeah. And just, but also in a loving way. Like it wasn't like, you know, abusive or anything. He just, he just knew what I needed and he knew he was trying not to let me quit on myself because there was times I wanted to quit. Right. You know, especially when I couldn't do a push up. I mean, I really wanted to quit. Yeah. So when you're, when, so when you leave, you leave prison, what did you do? Did, how did you stick to the routine or like, did it take a second or, you know, you're on this new track, you, you become a personal trainer. Like how did that start? Especially when you're getting out of prison and figuring out how to like maintain the, you know, what you, all the positivity, like you rebuilt yourself and then how do you, how do you keep that going on the outside? Well, I got to tell you, it was tough. I mean, because you, you never know what's going to happen, but he gave me a workout plan that I still have framed in my place. So I never forget where I came from. And it has like, you know, stuff like, you know, one day you do push-ups, and then one day you run, one day you do bicep. I mean, all the different stuff we did in there. And I just, I told him, I was like, how can I ever pay, pay you back for what you did for me? And he's like, just pay it forward, number one. Number two, like keep on a straight and narrow. And remember, don't quit on yourself. And so that was motivation enough to get me started. I was like, I, I can't let my cellmate down, like at all. And then like, I got it let out like the day after Christmas. So it was cold out and I couldn't really run. So I remember like writing him a letter. I was like, dude, I'm working out in the, in the basement doing jumping jacks and pushups. I haven't been able to run because it's so cold. And he was like, Doug, I train. Um, he's like, I train, I make machines. I don't train wusses. He's like, get yourself a sweat pair of sweatpants and get your ass outside and run. I said, all right. So I went to Target like the next day. And, you know, but again, it was like that tough love I needed because I was trying to be like, man, eh, it's winter, it's cold. And, you know. Yeah. Let yourself off the hook a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then I just started seeing more results. I started losing more weight. I started eating a lot better. I shifted from like a meal looking like something like a cheesesteak and a couple slices of pizza. to now I'm eating like a salad with grilled chicken on it. I'm eating like oatmeal for breakfast and instead of like Pop-Tarts or um, – hot pockets or whatever right and right. i slowly started to lose weight and i slowly day by day started to build confidence in myself and i just knew like you know i never went to AA or 12-step meetings or whatever but they, they there's a big thing in there that's like one day at a time and it literally was like that was how it was for me i knew i had to just win that day and if i could just keep winning those days i'd be you know better off and i saw so much inspiration in what fitness did in my life that i knew my calling is to become a trainer and help other people use fitness to change theirs. And so I lost about 40 or 50 pounds and I was really in really, really good shape. This is back in, I got out of jail in 2000, the end of 2008. And this is probably in 2010. I really wanted to be a personal trainer. I, after I'd, I gotten out of jail, I actually lived with my grandparents um, for a while who took me in, but they said, you're going to follow some strict rules. You're going to, you know, tell us where you're going. You're going to bring us receipts for what we give you money for. We'll provide you food, all that stuff. And you're going to exercise and you got to have a job and, and stuff like that. And my first job was at a liquor store. And I worked there for about a year and a half. And where, where is this? In so it's, a, it's in Lutherville. So probably like, I want to say 15 minutes outside of Baltimore. Okay, gotcha. And it was so actually- Pretty close to where you grew up. Yeah, and, and I had I had 21 jobs by the time I went to jail. Like I was just bouncing around from job to job. I was like, you know, screw working at Panera Bread. I'm going to go sell drugs. I mean, why would I make $7 an hour, whatever I was making, right. when I can go out and just hustle for an hour? And uh, and so when I decided to become a trainer, um, I was still a convicted felon, which was really hard because that, like back then it was still like pretty, 
it's stigmatized obviously now, but back then it was really stigmatized because if you check a box, you're a felon and they kind of look at you a little bit differently. And I remember like applying for a job at this place, not far from the liquor store I worked at called the Maryland Athletic Club, um, also known as the MAC. And, you know, I was like pretty much hired spot on. I was just so passionate. I shared my story about what fitness did for my life. But I said, there's something you got to know. I'm a convicted felon. And they were like, oh, what? Like, really? Did you have to tell us that? And I was like, I mean, I just wanted to be upfront because I felt like if I was going to be judged for that, then why would I want to work at a place like that? You know, yeah, because totally. I knew like I wasn't, a, I just made some really poor decisions. I wasn't a bad person. And I had to you know, go through a bunch of interviews with HR and management and I, I, they gave me a chance. And I was so, so freaking happy and that I could now take the lessons my cellmate had taught me and carry the torch to, to help other people. So I worked at a local wellness center for almost seven years, I think it was, and really built a successful business there, just out of passion. Like I knew it was in the right place. I knew I just loved what I did. I didn't care if I worked 60 hours a week. Right. right. I just loved. So you were training people and is that yeah. what you were doing? You were just- Yeah, like, so I got certified as a trainer and started at, training people. Like at this community center, right? Yeah, okay. It was at a, yeah, at a wellness center wellness and center, just started yeah. um, really being able to like have an impact with my story and being like, you know, just being able to relate to people. Because a lot of people, like they wanted to, to lose weight, they wanted to gain muscle, whatever. But what really they wanted was to feel better about themselves. Right. And so I was like, well, and I felt like crap at myself too. Let me tell you a story. And I would tell them my story. And sure enough, they were able to relate to me. And I was able to kind of get with them on a deeper level so I could really motivate them internally to how to get those external results that we all want. And, um, you know, time kind of flew by. I was obviously training full time, was doing very, very well. I was a you know, one of the top producers in the entire company for for a year, I mean, for the whole time I was there. Um, and, you know, I'd like to say that my entrepreneur skills from <laughs> selling drugs, like kind of correlated over. Um, I don't know if they did or didn't, but I just really cared about people. Yeah. I just really cared about my clients and seeing, having them see results. I wanted them to be happy and I wanted them to succeed because I felt like if they weren't succeeding, I wasn't succeeding. Right, right. And, and then honestly, like to afterwards, um, I just started listening to, you know, I don't know where I found it, but I just started listening to to positive like YouTube videos and positive reading positive books. And actually Gary's book, um, Crush It, was like one of the first books out of high school that I ever read, like during like my time building a business, right? Right. And so I started following people like Gary. I started following my a big mentor of mine was this guy Todd Durkin, who I went to his mentorship back in 2000, um, 2011, 2012. He's out in San Diego, and you know he really helped change the trajectory of my fitness career and helped help me focus more on personal development and business development and how it's not just about like learning new exercises, it's about taking care of yourself. And so then I just I got more motivated to follow people like Gary Vee and um, you know Tony Robbins and I'm trying to think who else was big back then, but John Maxwell, like all these personal development gurus that, that were in back in 2012, 2013, and just started like learning from what they would say and just trying to put some of their stuff in action about hustling and taking care of your clients and being authentic. And, um, and so through the years, my training business continued to flourish. And in 2014, my probation was up. So going to, first of all, going on probation, going into probation was really hard for me because I'd have to like call in every time I left the state to tell them that I was leaving the state. And it was like, I was, it was almost, it was like, I was just, I was, you're still, you still feel like a criminal, even though you're not incarcerated. And you have to go there, pee in a cup. And you know that if you somehow like 
drank somebody else's beer or not beer, somebody else's um, drink. And then it was a beer, had beer in it or alcohol. Or if you, somebody like, I was always worried my friends were going to like blow smoke in my face, like marijuana smoke when I was sleeping or something. I, I just didn't, I didn't know what was going to happen. That I could pee in the cup and fail and I didn't do anything wrong. And, but I thankfully, I didn't do any drugs, stayed, you know, clean and made it through probation. And when they, when they came up, I had to write a modification letter to my judge because my judge had told me if I completed the five years, he would take the felony off my record. And so one of my clients was a lawyer and we ended up writing a nice letter. He did. And I kind of helped tweak it. And he granted me the modification hearing. And so January 9th, 2014, I went into court and he took the felony off my record conviction. Wow. So like, I just remember like as you flash back, like, you know, when I was 20 thinking it would never happen because I didn't think I was going to make it to see my 25th birthday. And here I am 25 and the conviction's off. And I just never knew how much my life could change from being shackled as a convicted felon to now being able to vote, being able to travel out of the country, you know, being able to not check the box when I applied for a job. And I just was really inspired after that and to write, to share my story. And so that's when I wrote my first book, From Felony to Fitness to Free, to inspire people to make the most of their second chance, turn negative into a positive and focus on how far they've come and not how far they have to go. And for me, like, it was really, really helpful to put that on paper. Like I didn't write the book to make the New York Times bestselling list. I didn't write the book to retire and never have to work. I wrote the book just to help people and share my story. Like I just never wanted to get away from from training because that's what that's my bread and butter. That's what I love doing. And so when you're writing these books, like how did, first of all, how did you decide to do that? You know, you kind of wanted to get your philosophy on paper, like you said, and just sort of like uh, it felt good to have that down. But like what, you know, as you were writing them, what did you sort of discover about writing that was helped you know people connect or relate or like what was that what was the most surprising thing that kind of happened after that i think be, people being able to relate to my struggles i mean it wasn't like i think a lot of times we we look at people who do drugs and they're like oh they're bad people they do drugs and really like doing drugs just masking a lot of the same problems that a lot of a lot of people struggle with anyway we people just people just use food or shopping or sex or gambling or vanity to get that same you know dopamine effect that drugs give you and I think I started writing like emails for my clients like motivational stuff and they're like oh you're a really good writer and I was like well I barely graduated high school so I I really don't know how that's possible and you know people kept telling me you got to write a book you got to write a book and I was like nah like and uh just finally just after people nudging me to do it I just was like you know what I'm gonna start it and I remember just once I started writing it things just flowed it's like you get that writer's high and you know, I remember when I first got done my, first, my rough draft, I sent it to one of my clients like, Doug, you got to have chapters. You can't just have one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like it was in a Word ending. document. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and so, you know, and I made some mistakes in the book as far as, you know, grammar and things. I, you know, like there was one thing I said, I said I was afraid I'd get butt raped in jail. It was one of the things I put in my first book. And my friends are like, why'd you write that in there? And I'm like, well, I mean, I wasn't really, I was just speaking from the heart because I, that was one of the fears of my, because I was like, a, the thing, you know, is, you think about when you go to jail, like what are you scared of? Well, getting your butt kicked, getting, you know, getting stabbed or you know, getting raped. You know, that was like a fear of mine. And because I knew I wouldn't laugh. I knew I was like, man, like I'm a low man on a totem pole. Totem pole. I could, there's no way I could defend myself against anyone. And and so once I got it, got it out and it started printing and people started reading it, people were like really inspired and they started wanting to gift it to like their kids or gift it to a family member that was in jail. Or I remember like this mom coming to me crying and, um, at a book signing, I had at a local 
bookstore and she said, I wanted to give this to my son for his birthday. He's incarcerated. And I just, just really hit home with like how much it really meant to me to now my, my shift being from being a trainer to just really wanting to share my story to help other people. And, um, and I got, I got pretty emotional because you just never, you never realize like that stuff like that can happen. Like, right. I, like for me, I would never picture being in Vayner media right now, having a conversation <laughs> with you f- yeah, five years ago. I mean, even, yeah. even after I would, I mean, I would, cause I just, you just never know, but the more I just put myself out there and the more I just started sharing, you're like, man, you got a great story. And I was like, oh, really? Like, so I just wanted to keep paying it forward. And then I started like really, I was like, man, I don't want to be just be a trainer. Like you see trainers and like, unless you're like, you know, selling products and have all these crazy programs, you're not really, the sustainability of like crushing it, so to speak, Yeah, it's really hard. Yeah. Totally. Um, and so I wanted- There's a lot move, of competition. Also. Tons <laughs> of trainers, <laughs> yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. And so I just wanted, wanted to move into speaking more and sharing my story and and tackling different niches. So my one of my niches was helping people who struggled with recovery um, you know, use fitness as an inspiration to beat addiction and, and thrive in recovery. So I started training people who were in recovery, which was really special for me too. Yeah. Cause then I kind of want to talk to this book you're working on. Yeah. Sort of you're talking to, uh, people who have gotten sober and have sort of turned, made changes in their life. I mean, what are sort of the, what are the sort of the connecting threads from your personal training experience and your, uh, experience in prison that you're kind of exploring here just because, you know, uh, uh, addiction and incarceration in America are the very complicated topics. And <laughs> yeah. I'm sure that, you know, like you said, you weren't in a program per se. So it's like you, there's different approaches to sort of get where you're in a better headspace. I mean, what, what, what things are you learning when you're working on this book and talking to people that have sort of, uh, reinvented themselves? I mean, I, I think fitness plays a huge part in it, you know, just in, in mental, mental psyche. And, um, and, and whether you're, it doesn't matter, like, we like to put people in boxes sometimes, right? We like to think, okay, like, just do cr- CrossFit, you do CrossFit or you don't do anything or you do weight training. You don't do, and so you got to do what works for you. You got to do what continues to help you move the needle and, and like play to your strengths to, yeah. to a degree, right? So, yeah. I mean, they all do something, right? Yeah. They all do like something that works for them, whether it's yoga, whether it's running, whether it's boxing, whether it's the gym. Yeah. Um, Find that thing. Yeah. And then the, there's like a few that, you know, currently aren't because of either an injury, but they know the, the importance of it. Um, their relationships also changed for the positive, right? They decided that, you know, their, their relationships were a lot better. They were a better person, um, you know, without the drugs, obviously. So they're able to be better to other people. Um, and then also like just knowing what they need to do on a day-to-day basis to maintain their recovery. Yeah. Just like routine and, you know, exercise and those those being sort of building blocks or like that's a platform for where you can start. I mean. I'm just kind of thinking of like, you know, the young person who's trying to get to where you got, you know, get from I have an exercise to feeling good about themselves, you know? Yeah. And I think also that um, there's just, there's so many different approaches to recovery. So I interviewed, you know, close to 50 people, maybe a little over 50 from all walks of life about what they did to get and stay sober into recovery in whatever way works for them. And there's people in there that, aren't completely sober. There's people in there that obviously are sober. There's people in there that focus on harm reduction. I mean, it's just different methods because we try to, in recovery, you know, AA obviously is really popular and I respect AA and I have a lot of friends that are in AA, but you know, I don't, it's not the only way. And I saw just people just in my experience that like, if they didn't fit into a box into AA or whatever, harm reduction, whatever, that they would be like, well, I guess it's not, this isn't for me. 
I might as well go back or they weren't happy. And so I really wanted to, to dig into people and show that like you can't just be um, in recovery. You got to be healthy too. You got to change how you take care of your body. You got to change what you eat. You got to change your the types of people you hang out with. You got to change your mindset. You got to change the things you're telling yourself to, in order to really thrive in recovery. And um, and so just it was just really interesting. I actually ended up changing. I originally called the book The Titans of Recovery. Now it's called The Heart of Recovery because the Titans just – as I talked to people, it just like it just seemed. Yeah, you didn't necessarily want to like <laughs> Titans. You know, kind of that's like an elevated status or well, yeah, saying, yeah, that's just saying that people they're better at it than other people. Well, no, and plus, it. and like humility is huge in yeah, recovery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you didn't want to like annoy. Yeah. Well, sense. I didn't want you know, and and so I was really just trying to fo- have it focus on like the heart of recovery. You got to get down to the heart. Like these people, they change their hearts. They change like, spiritually. Yeah. They change their hearts physically. They change their hearts mentally and emotionally, and. I'm really excited for it to come out in March. Um, I think it's going to change a lot of people's lives. I put a lot of work. Like I hustled my butt off. Yeah, maybe tell like a, if you have a story about something you you know talking to someone, or do you have like a kind of a moment that sticks out from this experience of talking to people that is like was either really surprising or really interesting. I mean, I just think as a trainer, you know, calling people's publicists and managers and trying to track people down. They're like, "Who are you?" I'm like, yeah. yeah, I'm Doug Bobst. I'm a trainer in Maryland. But you have a good story to tell. Yeah. Yeah. And I would just be like, hey, but I kind of just share my story and let me let you know why I'm writing this book. And they're like, who's your publisher? And I'm like, oh, I think I'm going to self-publish. They're like, oh, well, like, who's your agent? I'm like, and I'm like, aren't you like happy that I'm a nobody and I'm not here to exploit your, you know, yeah, yeah. it was just hard for me because I'm in Maryland and then, and I'm not used to, 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 to dealing with this stuff. I just, I thought it was a lot easier than that. I thought it'd be as easy as like DMing somebody on Instagram. You know? It can be though. Well, no, it was you know, for a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, what really was interesting to me was just that noticing the common threads among the stories. Yeah. And you're noticing that these are all amazing people. That they're not bad people. I mean, there's a lot of people that think they associate people who do drugs with people who are bad. And they're they're not yeah. bad people. Yeah. We just unfortunately make some poor decisions. And um and so yeah, I mean, the types of people they wanted to hang out with, the, the their physical routines, um, how they, you know, treat one I mean they all kind of it all changes when because obviously when you, you're doing drugs like myself you make a lot of poor decisions and you make you, you do a lot of people wrong and um but it like once getting the book done it just the the amount of relationships I've built as a result of meeting so many different people and just trying to maintain those just to you develop some friendships so I mean it's just really really Im- impactful for me yeah, so uh, you know, Kat, there's a lot of myths about prison, um, right? And you you kind of mentioned that you had some ideas of what it might be like, based off you know popular culture. Um, what you know, what kind of, how did you approach those, and what did you learn? What what things surprised you, and what things kind of were true? <laughs> well, just like all things in life, you kind of got to see things through before making a decision, right? And so for me, I was creating all this fear inside my head based on what I thought it would be like, when really. Most of the time, unless like you're disrespectful or doing things you're not supposed to be doing, you know, it's pretty even keel in there. People are just trying to do their time and get out of there. I mean, I was in a place where, you know, you had to be serving, I think, anything less than a year and a day. Anything over a year and a day, you go to the state prison. So people were just trying to do their time and get out of there. And I was always like the goofy kid in there. I was hot, you know, I was coming in detoxing and they all kind of like, I was like the goofy kid and they were all kind of like laughing at me and they had respect for me because. I just came in there and I did my stuff. And then when I started exercising, they saw that I was trying to improve myself. I just wasn't afraid to laugh at myself either. So they were able to like really, you were able to resonate. And I was just nice. And I didn't like 
but in line or I didn't think I was better than anybody. I didn't do anything dumb that would cause like a shakedown. What shakedown is like when they come in, they lock you in your room and they just search everything to make sure there's no like yeah, contraband. contraband. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> did you have like, during this time, did you have, you know, did your family visit or did anyone come see you or? Yeah, I had family come visit. My grandparents came, my parents came, my brothers came. It's definitely interesting, you know, being able to, uh, I mean, being able to like, you know, you talk on the phone, you know, through a glass door. I remember I, I'm, I had like long chops in there. I didn't care. I was like, who am I trying to impress, right? right? right. And I remember like my, my mom visiting me. I had long chops and I was like, probably not the best time for her. She'd only came once because it was really hard for her to come visit me. And I guess rightfully so. And then the letter, like some of the letters I wrote, I still have them. Um, my mom actually saved them. I didn't know it. I go over there like a few months ago and I'm like, she's like, oh, look what I found. It's a Doug jail on it. It was just some of the letters, how I the one I wrote her, I just, I had, I just, I still saved it and I have it. I promised her that was going to change. I was like, you, I know you don't believe, I know it's hard for you to believe, but I promise you I'm rapidly changing in here and you'll see it when I get out. And, um, yeah, what did it make you feel reading that? How did you feel? Did you, I felt kind of emotional because yeah. he really like, it was kind of weird because I was like, wow, this is kind of true. Like, I mean, yeah. in a non, in a, in a way it was, but I didn't think that, like, I just yeah. was trying to convince her to like, be proud of me and, and to believe me and to trust me again. And it took time. It took a lot of time to rebuild that trust. And when you're when I was in jail, some things that really got me by were playing Scrabble. Like I, I called myself like the Scrabbler when I got out. Like, I, like on a Friday night, it would be like, I'd be with my grandparents, like, hey, you guys want to play Scrabble and like watch Food Network? And they'd be like, and I tell my friend, because like, I didn't want to really go out. I didn't want to risk like doing things stupid because I did a lot of stupid things. And I played a lot of chess, pinochle, spades, um, but I was just, I was always like very social. I was able to talk to people and ask them about their stories and just be able to just chat with them about like what got them in there. And, you know, and I just, they were, it was pretty, you know, honest conversations. It was fun, um, in ways like we had fun in there. Yeah. Like you said, you connected to it. You cried when you left. It was just, you found a community, you kind of had a community. Well, yeah. And like yeah. one of the, one of the more like embarrassing, not embarrassing, but like it was like a few days before Christmas. And uh, this like Catholic. Is this before you got out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Before, before I got. So, yeah, I, so you got the, out the day after Christmas. So this is like maybe like a wee, a short time amount before that. Yeah, and this, yeah, this, this like church group came to sing us Christmas carols, and they brought us like milk and cookies. So they brought us out of our cells. We're like lined up. You know, we go in this room, and they're like, "Here, here's your milk and cookies." And we started singing like, I forget, like Jingle Bells or something. And I was like, God, what the heck have I? What have I come to? And um, <laughs> and it's funny, you know. And now like I do a lot. Of, I try to, you know, I do a lot of volunteering when I can to to organizations with, with with people who are going through some of the similar things that I went through. And it's just really humbling to, I mean, never forget where I came from. It's important, I think, in life to do those sort of things because I think when we experience success, which we tend to forget sometimes where we were. So I just, I, I told my, I've told myself, I never want to forget where I came from because I remember when I was there, how bad I felt. And I just know what some people are going through who are in that same spot as me. So yeah, and you, you know, a lot of your books and your like speaking, you talk, you know, you're talking about recovery and how do you sort of avoid falling back into addiction and what are what are the things you kind of, uh, you know, outside of what you've talked about already, just sort of remembering where you came from. What are some things you really think on when when that enters your brain? I mean, honestly, for me, I it's just been I've been in recovery for over a decade now. Um, that I don't I don't really think about drugs anymore. I don't think about, you know, whenever I get stressed, I mean, life happens, right? I still get stressed, anxious, depressed. I mean, it's life, right? I'm a human being, but the tools I have to, to manage the stress 
are positive. So I'll go for a run or I'll go work out. I'll call a mentor. I'll pray. I mean, read. I mean, and, and I just think it's important to have these tools in your life so that when you are experiencing um, some rough times to be able to battle that. And, and so I've just kind of, it's been like second nature now that when I was struggling, I had to use some tools to get me out of it. And these are just the same tools I've been using. And so I always tell people, I'm like, when you get, you're either going to manage stress in a healthy way or unhealthy way. You have to manage it somehow. You can choose how you do it. And your three words that have really been big in my life are faith, family, and fitness. And I'm consider myself to be a Christian. I don't jam it down people's throats. Like you do what works. Like I, one of the questions in the book is about spirituality. And I wanted people to show that it's not a one size fits all approach. You can be Buddhist, Christian, Jew, like um, you can, you know, worship, you know, nature or whatever, but like do what works for you. Like, and so faith. Or just like having a belief system. And, yeah, I mean, yeah, just yeah, being yeah. like, you know, I, cause I think a lot of times we try to put people in, in these boxes and like, right. I don't like, I don't, I don't want to jam anything down anybody's yeah. throats because I remember when it was jammed down my throat, how much I wanted to throw it back up because yeah. it's like kind of how we are. And so faith, but not just like spirituality faith, but like faith in yourself, like believing in yourself, like that mindset change, just believing that you know you're going to freaking do it and um, just keep going. And um, and then family, like who you surround yourself with, like surround yourself with people that are challenging, loving, and supporting you to be the best freaking person possible. And fitness, like what are you doing on a daily basis to take care of yourself physically? Right. And those have been three things that have really helped me when I hit stress, when I hit any kind of adversity in my life to help battle it. And I try to, that's what I try to, you know, point out to other people too, when I'm talking to them, like, how, how are you going to stay grounded? Like, what are some things you're going to do when life hits you? Because when you get sober, that's just the start. Right. I think 90% happens after that. Right. So Doug, uh, where can people follow you, find you, find your books? What are the best ways to kind of follow your story and what you're doing? So you can follow me on Instagram at, at Doug Bopes, so Doug underscore Bopst. And then uh, my books are on Amazon. And the newest one will be available March 12th. March 12th. Yeah, Heart so be on the lookout. Yeah, The Heart of Recovery, real people, real lives, real success stories. It's going to be a game changer. I'll be posting it on my social, on my Instagram as it gets closer. And I look forward to people to reading it and helping it change some lives. Great, Doug. Thanks so much for joining us on 137 p.m. podcast. I'm Corbin Goble. Thank you. This is 137 p.m. Own your future. Start this minute. 137 p.m. is a Gallery Media Group original production.